This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. Here, of course, both of us to talk about the coronavirus pandemic. Big mystery that is yet to be solved is when did the virus first come to the U.S.? There have been some theories out there, but nobody's been able to pinpoint exactly when until now, maybe. We'll get into new research from UCLA that tracked a spike in visits to hospitals in Southern California toward the end of last year when people were experiencing symptoms connected to COVID-19. One of the many nasty things about this virus is how it can attack the brain. We'll get into all the strange neurological and cognitive symptoms. Some colleges moving forward with football, others holding off. So how's it going for the teams and the schools that are playing and are practicing right now? Longtime journalist Bob Woodward, you know him, of course, from Watergate, sat down months ago for interviews with President Trump. Now, he knew that the president knew just how deadly the virus was and could be. But was Woodward wrong for not letting us all know until now when he has a book coming out? Let's talk if the virus got here earlier than we thought. Uh, Dr. Joanne Elmore, professor of health policy management at UCLA, co-author of a new study. So, doctor, where did you first get the notion that the virus might have been going around since December? I got the idea basically from listening to my colleagues and my patients in March and April in that um, many of my colleagues at UCLA were wondering if the patients we had seen a few months earlier with those that had really severe symptoms, if they might have had COVID. And then my patients started emailing me with the same question. Other than just looking at the history of patients, is there any way medically to, beyond a shadow of a doubt, prove it? Oh, I'm glad you asked that because anyone listening is going to immediately ask the same question. Unfortunately, we don't have a great answer to that in that there are antibody tests, there's variability in the testing, and we're not yet certain what the antibodies mean. If someone feels that they had typical symptoms of COVID back in January and February, I would refer them to the CDC guidelines on antibody testing because it's not an exact science. Yeah, it's it's funny. I was I was one of those who swore up and down like, okay, I had something weird that was going on, and then I once they had antibody tests out, I think this was, you know, a few months after I had had what I thought I had. Um, I went and got one and showed nothing. But then you know you get the research in and it shows maybe you only have them detectable for two, three months, and it would have been gone. So does this present us with a situation where we've got this whole group of people who are kind of always going to be in the unknown? At least for now, yes. (laughs) I'm a scientist in addition to a uh, physician, and I have faith in science. And uh, the pace at which scientists are working during this world pandemic is so impressive and inspiring that I hope that whatever I say this week will be improved <laughs> on next week. But, but to, what, to sort of try to zero in um, the possible time frame here as best we can. So the uptick that was being seen uh, in ERs was roughly, what, around Christmas, before Christmas? Well, we looked at both the outpatient clinics and the ERs, the emergency rooms, and hospitalizations. And so that's something unique about our study in that 
early on in this pandemic, everyone was understandably paying attention to how many patients were hospitalized, how many patients were on the ventilator. But for the spread of a virus, they start in the community. And those are patients that come into the outpatient clinics. So we started with our clinics and searched almost 10 million records at UCLA Health over many years. And we saw that this winter, there was a 50% increase in patients coming to our clinics because of a complaint of a cough. That's a pretty huge spike when you base it on all those years together. It, it was. Um, it was more than 1,000 patients over the December, January, and February months. And when we did some additional statistical analysis and that looked at the number of patients coming in week by week, we actually found that in early December, it was what you would expect. It wasn't anything unusual last early December 2019. But the last week in December, it went up above what you would expect by chance. Uh, it was statistically significant. And what was so impactful is that it continued to stay above what you would expect every single week through January and February. Well, that would mean, and if my my uh, uh, primitive math abilities <laughs> are are good, uh, when you on his fingers yeah, over here. when you take into account that what at its at its most it, it's considered to be about a fourteen day incubation period, so that would put the possibility of uh, community transmission of the coronavirus at possibly early December, right? Uh, for you to get the results of people visiting the ER and being hospitalized toward the end of December or around Christmas time. Uh, and if that's the case, we didn't really lock down in the state until March. That would have meant December, January, February, three solid months when this virus was spreading without anybody really taking any protective measures. That is correct. Um, I will point out that I suspect that some, if not most of these cases may have been just the general flu and we had a bad year of influenza. But the fact that the cases were so extraordinarily above what you would expect, I, I think that a small number of these cases were likely also COVID-19 cases. And this is compatible with a growing body of literature. You've probably heard about people in Italy and Brazil checking the sewage wastewater and right. finding yeah. evidence back in December and even November. And there have been cases in Paris where a gentleman was hospitalized the end of December and they sent his samples and found, surprisingly, that that patient even was positive for COVID. So I, I feel that there probably has been a small smoldering amount of community spread of this virus. Remember, many patients are asymptomatic or only mildly symptomatic, and that's why I wanted to start with looking at the clinics. Dr. Joanne Elmore, internist, professor of health policy management. As if this virus hasn't been bad enough, now we're learning it can attack the brain. A lot of people have reported things like memory loss, confusion, and dizziness. So how does it attack the brain, and is this a novel behavior for the novel virus? Dr. Akiko Iwasaki, viral immunologist, cell molecular biologist at the Yale School of Medicine, also the author of a new study on COVID's effects on the brain. So, doctor, what's going on with all this? So the symptoms are certainly real. Um, many people, including the long haulers, are suffering from neurologic symptoms, and people who are admitted to the hospital a uh, majority of them also suffer from one form or the other of neurologic symptoms. 
what our study found is that um, this virus can infect neurons in the brain, uh, showing uh, per- perhaps a direct link between the virus infection and some of these symptoms. How does it get there and what exactly is it doing? Or is this just a case of this is a virus that'll find its way to wherever it wants to and then just start wiping things out? Right. So how does it get there is a good question. We don't understand still. Um, it's possible that, you know, there is a route from the nose to the brain through the olfactory bulb. Um, but we don't really know exactly how the, the virus got to the brain. Could it be that... Um other viruses that perhaps we know about or maybe don't know about uh, is the cause of a lot of cognitive issues that some people have, but because we happen to be focusing on COVID, we're discovering that COVID can be one of them. Absolutely. There are many other viruses that can also enter the brain and infect the neurons, uh, herpes virus and Zika virus and West Nile. There are many uh, so-called neurotropic viruses so Zika virus is not alone in this category, um, but, you know, uh, we are just studying specifically what happens with the Zika virus infection. When COVID gets into the brain and there are starting to be effects, is this a similar case to what's happening in other parts of the body that at a late stage your immune system is overcompensating and you're hurting yourself? Or does the immune response in the brain differ from your other organs? Right. So that's a really good question. Uh, We think that the brain is dealt with differently with respect to how the immune system mounts, um, you know, attack to this virus. In fact, what was surprising from this study is that we didn't see a lot of immune cells uh, coming to, you know, attack the virus in the brain. In fact, it was pretty silent, uh, meaning that the infection is there, but it it appears like there's no um, immune cells coming to the rescue. So it's it's a little different from what we see with other organs, where the immune cells are sort of swarming the site of infection. Uh, we don't see that in the brain. Does this complicate um, the possibility for effective therapeutics and or vaccine? Um, I don't think so, because the, the vaccine uh, will be able to block the virus from ever entering you know, the host cells, uh, especially uh, distal places like the brain. So even if a vaccine were to, um, you know, uh, block, uh, so the vaccine should be able to block the virus from entering uh, tissues like the brain or the lung um, and hopefully protect the host. Uh, so I, I don't see this as a impediment to vaccine development. Dr. Akiko Iwasaki, viral immunologist, cell molecular biologist, Yale School of Medicine. Some college football teams are practicing and playing right now. Now, this hasn't been easy in the middle of the pandemic. Lots of schools opted to delay or cancel their seasons, the pandemic upending sports, even the finances of athletic departments. KYW's Matt Leon talked to Dr. Karen Weaver, member of the graduate faculty at the University of Pennsylvania, about the many issues in college sports right now. I knew that there would be fits and starts around the country because that's the way the virus has trended. You know, it's been hot in one place. Now, all of a sudden, today, you look at the Dakotas and Minnesota and the upper Midwest as being a real hot spot. And that might move to somewhere else. Just a few weeks ago, it was Texas and Arizona and Florida. So as as decisions have been made, they've tried to follow the science that was relevant to their position at that time. And what happens is people's behavior changes. We just had Labor Day. So what is that going to do to 
um, all of the calculations that we've been doing with gathering in large places, having crowds at games, you know, breakouts with, with students returning to college campuses. All of those things are new things to factor in to a very complex situation. So I guess in some ways I expected it to be very haphazard, but in other ways I really kind of thought that we'd have a little more clarity on the, on the, um, on the national leadership front, if you will. Yeah, and I guess that, do you think we'd be better off if we did have a one-size-fits-all approach from the, from the federal level uh, and everybody kind of played by those same rules? Or, as you mentioned, the hot spots of the virus, does that make it kind of impossible? Well, I don't know that it should have come from the federal government, but certainly the issue with the, the Power Five conferences and the rest of the NCAA, that, that uh, break-off was really uh, exacerbated by this pandemic. And we found quickly that the NCAA could ex- exert its authority in uh, lower levels of Division One, in all of Division Two, and in all of Division Three. And in fact, you know, in some situations, told Division Three conferences, no, I don't care what your numbers say, you aren't playing. But when it came to the Power Five conferences, they knew that their hands were off because they weren't running the championship. And that's all the NCAA has to hold over is when is that postseason championship going to be run? So because they had very little influence, where, where were college sports leaders supposed to look except internally at their own conference and conferences because of conference realignment from 10 years ago with, uh, with households and television are so spread out over large state footprints that that became a, a really um, counterproductive when you look at, at COVID-19. Overall, we knew, it, I think it became apparent very early on that this was going to be catastrophic on financial level for athletic departments once the NCAA tournament went away. And you know now we're seeing a lot of places not play college football. We have seen some schools cut programs. We have seen other schools trim schedules down to just a, a conference. Recently, we've heard a lot about furloughs in departments. University of Utah actually furloughed everybody, and that includes the athletic director and the football coach. That really turned my head. Do you think there are more big-ticket moves like that coming down the pike? There has to be, and, and, and that's what's so unfortunate. I can't imagine what it feels like to be working in a department like that, almost any athletics program in the country right now, where you know that that's going to be the bare minimum that you're going to be asked to do in order to help meet the financial targets of the year. Uh, and that's across all college campuses. You know, um, uh, Temple, as, as you mentioned earlier, has started off, and then they, now they've sent students home. What does that mean for all of uh, the staff, the faculty, the people who take care of the buildings, all those kinds of things when your revenue streams are, are upended? So a furlough seems like the, the, the lowest hanging of fruit. And then, but then you look at layoffs, you look at unfilling, um, vacant, not filling vacant positions, you look at um, cutting people, and ultimately you, you, you end up looking at sports. And I think that's really the unfortunate part when you start to take away opportunities for student athletes because a sport doesn't generate revenue. I think that's um, not in alignment with who we are in higher education. Me personally, I figured there would kind of be a watershed week or a month where we just saw all these changes happen. But I guess 
a lot of these places it's you know we get through this month and then all of a sudden this revenue didn't come in and is it gonna it's just gonna be kind of this more everybody on their own schedule and as you know bills come due and they can't meet them or they need help meeting them we'll we'll kind of see the these changes come through uh here and there well i think that's some of it but i also think some of this is also you know the other parts of the industry that subsidize athletics including you know uh multimedia partners television partners all the companies that have contracts long-term contracts with athletic departments are also feeling the pinch. And they are more than likely to want to renegotiate at some point if they can't figure out a way to make up this time. Good example of that is what's going on with Under Armour. Under Armour right now is looking at schools on the West Coast and saying, I'm sorry, but the, the apparel deal just isn't working for us right now because the numbers aren't there. We want to renegotiate. So that's the other unknown part of this deal is that Yes, we can look at the at the expenses in our department, but what is actually going to happen to the revenues that we've normally counted on? Will they just automatically come back when we go back to campus and go back to normal life, whatever normal life is? Or will those look different too because those industries have been so impacted by COVID as well? President Trump sat down in February with journalist Bob Woodward for interviews. The president seemed to understand just how deadly the coronavirus was and just how big of a threat it was going to be for our everyday lives. But Woodward didn't say anything or release tapes of the interviews until now, now because he has a book coming out. Should Woodward have said something? Eric Wemple, media critic for The Washington Post, put this very question to Woodward in an exclusive interview. So, Eric, what was the answer? The answer was that he does not think... um that he uh, could have in any way mitigated or avoided uh, a public uh, health disaster by uh, publishing those interviews at any point along the timeline. Um, I mean, he talked about in February, as you mentioned, he got uh, President Trump said all this deadly stuff. Uh, Of course, at the time, nobody was really, not too many people were focused on coronavirus. This was February 7th. Then on March 19th, Trump said something to the effect that, hey, I've been downplaying it all along. Um, in both cases, in the, in the first case, Woodward said he had to do a lot more fact-checking, look at the context, whether Trump was right, fact-check, so on and so forth. It took months for him to sort of reconstruct what Trump had learned and when he learned it. And in March, when Trump said that I'd been playing, downplaying it all along, the coronavirus was sort of raging and it was sort of a moot point anyway. So, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was going to say, you know, I, and and I I, I read uh, similar comments that that Woodward gave to I think it was the Associated Press yesterday, and uh, I've always had nothing but great respect for his reporting. But I got to tell you, when I when I uh, heard or listened to those comments, I just don't buy it. Uh, I mean, what I kept thinking I of. What I kept thinking of is here's a guy who recognized that he had some hot material. He had a book coming out in a few months and wanted to make sure that he had something that he could use for the timing of the book and just didn't want to give it away. Because the fact of the matter is, whether he knew what Trump knew or didn't know, what he did know for sure in February was that the president of the United States was saying one thing about a global what was already a global crisis. And only a couple of days later, the White House said something that was 180 degrees the opposite, and he could have proven that that was the case. Yes, I think that that is true. Throughout February, 
Trump was definitely contradicting what he had told Woodward in private. Um, and so Woodward, I think, had to have known that that was news. Um, but I think the question here is not just was it news, but was it this other thing, which is that Woodward could have saved lives? Because book writers all the time, sit on stuff that's newsworthy. That's why books are written, right? You need stuff that's newsworthy. You need new revelations. Woodward has spent his entire career gathering new revelations that he later puts in books. I don't see any ethical problem with that. I think that the, the, the point, the real new criticism here is that Woodward could have saved lives. And that's what he really denies. And I don't find his denials Lacking, I, do, I don't. I don't find any evidence whatsoever that Woodward really thought that he could have saved lives by publishing this information. Was he surprised? I mean, I'm sure he saw the question coming. But when it's asked and you get to hear him say it, is it no, no, or is it no? Like this would not have mattered. The voice can, no, can tell you something. He's he just like, look, I, he definitely is like sort of. I think he was blindsided by this. Of course, these issues have come up before with him because he's always gets these nuggets. Um, in 2009, he did break out of the process and he reported on an Afghanistan issue um, before his book came out. But in this particular instance, I think Woodward was locked into his usual rhythm, which is Trump says something that he finds interesting. So all of a sudden Woodward dials up 9 million people tries to find out where he got that information, whether it was accurate, whether Trump might have been overstating the case, which is another concern. And, um, and he says that took him three months. Now, that seems like a long time to fact check something like that. Right. But, you know, but that is the Woodward method. And the point that I would make is that I don't necessarily think that the people who wanted him to publish this sooner are irrational or being being ridiculous, but he has a method that has worked over time. And that method is extremely exacting. And when he finds something out, he doesn't, his first instinct is not to publish it. It's to find out more from It's to shore it up. Eric Wemple, media critic for the Washington Post. Eric, thanks. Researchers working on a coronavirus vaccine would like to monkey around more, but they can't. It's because, well, there aren't enough monkeys. No, I'm being serious. We have a monkey shortage. We have, there's a monkey shortage with more than 100 vaccines in development around the world. There just aren't enough monkeys to use for research. Non-human primate research centers have been strained in recent years because of restrictions on imported monkeys from countries like China and India and a lack of funding to support domestic breeding. The National Primate Research Centers says rhesus monkeys are the most commonly used monkeys for preclinical trials because they share about 93% of their genes with us humans. The things you learn in 2020. Who would have thought there was a monkey shortage? Monkey shortage. All right, thanks for listening. We hope you're doing well. Radio.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher, the different ways to find us. And if you have a spare monkey, volunteer. Volunteer.